This is the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the show for real estate investors, stock traders, and business owners. We help you keep more of what you earn and protect what you've built. Let's get started. Have the interest rates got you concerned and put on the sidelines when it comes to buying a personal residence or investment real estate? If so, then you're going to want to watch this video because I'm interviewing Richard Advani of Guaranteed Rate, and he's going to talk to us about the strategies you can be using right now to get into real estate without having to show income, low rate loans to buy investment real estate, and even lower rates to buy a personal residence. All right, let's get started. Well, Richard, thanks for joining us. Why don't we start off, tell us a little bit about yourself and your company. Yeah, absolutely, Clint. My name's Richard Advani. I'm based here in Southern California. I am a mortgage lender. I've been in the mortgage business for going on 18 years now. Uh, very early on in my mortgage career, when I was quite young, I purchased my first out-of-state investment property and saw how it really was a good means to increase cash flow and build wealth. So I started focusing my lending business on working with investors, tailoring products to suit investor needs. Obviously, fast forward to today, I've closed thousands and thousands of investment transactions. And with a lot of that hard data, I've been able to grow my own portfolio to over 20 rental properties as well. Yeah, because lending's, you know, as we know, really important, especially now in this market. And there's a lot of investors out that are just wondering, you know, what is the right product for me? How can I find loans that have lower interest rates? So maybe we start off, can you explain a little bit about those DSCR loans and and what they are? And if somebody's not familiar with it, why they should be looking at that type of loan? Absolutely. So firstly, DSCR loans are uh, the full meaning of them is debt service coverage ratio loan. And basically what that means in English is the major requirement for these new loans for investors is that 100% of the gross projected rents cover the principal interest taxes and insurance. And let's assume that a property rents for 2000 a month and the payments, PITI payments, 2000 a month. Well, that would be a one-to-one DSER. And generally, that's the base level requirement for these loans. So uh, as you can imagine, you know, the advent of these loans into the market three or four years ago was very well received just because as investors, people were either capped out at 10 Fannie Mae loans, right? Uh, or we have a lot of clients, as, as you do, all your clients that are, you know, self-employed, um, that have lots of entities and maybe get a little aggressive on kind of their taxes and they may not qualify. So these DSCR loans kind of take that out of the mix. They're not income driven. And also they don't have limits on the finance properties. Now, DSCR loans, as you can imagine, right? These are, these are it's an amazing product, but of course, you pay a premium on the interest rate and fees over, let's say, a conventional Fannie Mae. Is there any limitations then as far as the loan size? Generally, no. I mean, these will go up to about one and a half to two million, depending on the DSCR investor that we work with. And you know, most clients we're working with kind of are in that high end, high end range would be the, you know, one and a half to two million loan amount for a short term rental. So it covers most everything we deal with. Got it. So if I'm applying for a DSCR loan, what I heard you say is, you know, income's really not an issue because it's all based upon the income generated from the property. And a lot of individual investors always think, well, do I make enough W-2? Do I show enough on my 1040? This removes that. How about the personal guarantee side? Because no one wants to be on the hook in case it turns out to be a, a dog of an investment they bought. 
Yeah, these loans still do require a personal guarantee. Uh, you do have the ability to close in the name of an entity, of an LLC, the title that is, but you are still personally guaranteeing the loan and it will show, still show up on your credit report. And that's really how they're able to offer these attractive terms on these loans. Although they're higher than conventional, a lot of times you're paying less than a 1% premium to have you know this loan as an option. So you know, it's, it's a great loan option out there, but, you know, it does cost a, a little more, of course. All right. So something else I think is important that people should know about. Let's say that you're not a real estate investor. Maybe uh, you want to get started in real estate investing and you're looking to get in the market with house hacking, which is renting out a room in your house. Now, the limitation we're finding right now, of course, is that when it comes for to, to buying properties, a lot of people just don't, they can't qualify because interest rates have gone up. But if they could get into one of those lower interest rate loans that used to be out there, then it opens up a door for them. So what I've been told is that you could do a FHA uh, or a VA loan or a USDA, I think is the other one, loan where you can actually assume the seller's mortgage. Do you, can you speak to that? Yeah. And, and you know, it's, that's a great point. And for people unaware of it, make sure you listen loud and clear for Customers that own homes that already have FHA, VA, or USDA loans, those loans come with an assumable feature, which allows the prospective buyer to come in. You still have to qualify for the loan, right? Uh, but assuming you do, the interest rate and the terms of that loan that the seller had, you can basically assume and take over, which, you know, as you can imagine, I think. 70% of the country's under a 4% interest rate right now. So, you know, even if that means paying market value or paying a little premium over market value to be able to assume this loan with, let's say, a 35 or 4% rate is a huge, huge windfall because where market rates are in the, you know, mid sevens, that the payments essentially almost double than what it is, you know, at a 4% rate. So that is a very, very good point, a good tip. It is obviously, as you can imagine, there's a lot of people out there trying to find those properties that have those types of loans. Uh, so it may be a little competitive out there in finding them, but I don't think the world is aware of what you just said, right? That these loans exist out there, that you can assume someone's loan into, you know, that the whatever rates they got, right? A lot of times it's going to be under 4%. Is there any way that you know of where you could say research title and discover whether or not that's an FHA loan uh, or a VA loan that's on the property. So I could do some background search before I start putting in offers. And that way I can target specific properties directly. Yeah, that's a great question. And yes, that type of information is public information. Generally, if you were able to pull a title report on the property, you would see uh, a lot of times whether the loan is FHA, VA or conventional. So yeah, there are definitely means to kind of consolidate the search field to properties that that meet that requirement and have those types of loans. Yeah, because I think it's really important. If I was someone in that position, I'm looking to get started using a house hacking strategy, since I have to treat it as my personal residence to assume that loan, I would definitely be looking for that and then bringing that up in the conversation with the seller. And as you, I think you stated, hey, maybe you give them a little premium because they're going to have to go through some steps, I assume, to transfer that loan over to you and there's always that fear that they're still going to be on the hook, but they're not going to be on the hook, are they, once they transfer the loan to you? No. Yeah. Once they the seller sells the property and you assume the loan, it has nothing to do with that seller anymore. You just have that very, very low interest rate, of course. And as you mentioned, you know, where incomes are and with 
you know, where housing and rates are, a lot of people don't can't enter the housing market, right? Um, even if they make 150 grand a year, it's it's not enough. So these assumable loans are a great way to obviously have houses become affordable and now you know participate in the housing market. Great. All right. Now let's let's switch back to the investors. So if I'm an investor and like you, you have 20 properties and I've been holding on to these properties, I have a lot of equity in them, and I want to tap into that equity and use that equity to start buying more real estate. One of the challenges that people run into a lot is that they have to go through and they think they have to obtain one conventional loan, one refi, cash out refi in each individual property. What do you say to the investor that says, hey, I just want to put up five properties as collateral. Let's say between those five properties, I have a million dollars in equity. What should I be doing? What should I be looking for? That's another good question. And the cross-collateralized loans are a great product for the right situation. For for the longest time, up until probably seven or eight years ago, you know, after the crash, we were really limited to offering just these conventional Fannie Mae, you know, up to 10 loans to an investor. And after that, you know, probably six or seven years ago, these cross-collateralized loans started coming out and started uh, kind of being an outlet for people over 10. And they were very, very popular because you know, they allowed cross-collateralization across. They allowed and almost required it, right? For for new acquisitions, they required you to be purchasing, you know, three to five doors for three to 500,000 at a minimum. What we've seen is with kind of the DSER programs coming out, they've really replaced the need for those cross-collateralized type loans. Now, they do offer benefits, as you mentioned there as well, right? You know, getting one loan that encompasses all your properties. However, there's a little bit of a misnomer that you're going to save because of that. Generally, you still are, of course, paying the title fees and the escrow fees and the recording fees and the appraisal fees, right, for each of, let's call it, five properties in that cross-collateralized loan. Where you would think you would save is typically on the lender and the processing fees, given that once again, you're getting one loan instead of five. Generally, what we've seen though is that's not the case because they're processing five loans, as you can imagine. Their lender fees, their processing fees are a lot higher than say it would be with one loan transaction. So, you know, it's important to analyze every each deal individually. I, I've seen a, a big drop in people utilizing those cross-collateralized loans once again with the advent of these DSCR loans. Now, if you're an investor with 50, 80, 100 properties, for you, there's a time perspective in there, right? And a time factor. It probably would be less time in getting one loan over 20 or 30 properties versus getting 20 or 30 individual loans. And that's where you would see really the benefit in this market. Um, it wouldn't be better terms or lower fees. It would be more of a time uh, savings for that larger in- investor. Well, if I was going to get, say, five individual loans, cash out, so you can do a DSCR cash out on your properties? Yes, absolutely. Okay, but would that be five credit hits then? Will they do one per loan versus if I just got one loan, it'll only be one credit hit? That's a great question. Um, and the answer is it will still only be one credit check. At least with us as a lender, we'll use that same credit report generally for up to four months. And that's that's whether the transactions are or not. So an investor may come in five properties at once. It's again, one credit check. And then two months later, they may say, hey, I've got another round of three properties. Well, guess what? We're going to still use that same credit report that we pulled two months prior. So yeah, there's not really a difference or an impact there. All right. So I've heard you keep saying, talking about 10 properties. And I I don't think a lot of people realize that with the conventional loans, the Freddie Fannie stuff, 
that there is a cap on the number of properties that you can borrow for. And you said 10. So what is one of the strategies that you typically recommend to investors who are coming in and, and they're starting to build their portfolios when it comes to borrowing against real estate or to buy property? Absolutely. And that's that's uh, another really good question. And yeah, so aren't aware Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac have kind of a cap of 10 finance properties per individual. The reason I mentioned individual is there is a strategy to maximize that 10 properties, to make it 20 properties or rather to double it. And that really involves, you know, kind of dividing and conquering with your spouse um, and potentially your children, which we can get into a little later here. But assuming, you know, well, let me back up a little. Conventional wisdom typically when people get married is, you know, you go join on everything, right? You join on the bank account, you go join on the mortgage for the house, you go join on the cars. And Really, that's that's frankly the wrong thing to do, especially as it relates to mortgage qualifying. Now, if the clients employed a strategy where you know the primary wage earner typically one of the spouses is making most of the money, right? The strategy is to put most of the debt on, if not all of the debt, on that primary wage earner, right? So when you're buying a primary home, assuming spouse number one is making most of the money and assuming they're qualified. You want to put that mortgage on just their name. You want to put the car loans, the credit cards on just that primary wage earner's name. And the reason why and, and what that kind of allows is the wage earner number two, right? The spouse that may work part time, may bring in fifteen to twenty thousand dollars a year as a teacher or even working at the family business. It allows that spouse now to also participate in the market and also buy 10 properties independent of you know, spouse number one. And, you know, the way that works really is qualifying for a mortgage is really a proponent of debt to income ratio, right? You don't need to make a lot of money to buy investment real estate and to qualify for a mortgage. However, what you do need to have is a very minimal debt load. Now let's take that example of spouse number two, right? Spouse number two makes $20,000 a year. She has no car loans under her name. She's on the title of the primary home as an owner, but she's not on the mortgage. Maybe she has a small credit card. So what is her debt load monthly? No housing expense. Let's call it $100 a month on a car payment. Excuse me, on a credit card payment. And what is her income? Even at $15,000 a year, roughly $1,200 a month, what is her debt to income ratio if her bills are only $100 a month? It's negligible. And generally, we can go up to a 50% debt to income ratio. Now that begs the question, well, what about the property she's buying, right? This is spouse number two based on this. 12000 a month in income. Well, we have the ability to use rental income on this new purchase to offset the debt. So essentially, the new property that spouse number two is going to purchase sorry, is effectively going to cover the mortgage payment, right? the rent. So that's a zero hit to that person's debt to income ratio. So basically what that means is spouse number two enters the transaction with like a 2% debt to income ratio. Mind you, we can go up to 50 she acquires this new property, uses the rental income to offset the debt. Let's call that a break-even payment. So she leaves the transaction after that first acquisition, also with the negligible debt-to-income ratio. And once again, you know, the beauty is given that we can go up to 50%, we can rinse and repeat. So we can take that spouse number two up to 10 properties as quick as she's comfortable moving, as quick as the family's comfortable moving. And you know, the beautiful thing in terms of security as well is. You know, when spouse number one's buying his 10, well, spouse number two can still be on title of those properties, 
spouse, right? We're just saying not to put, not to be on the loan and vice versa, right? When spouse number two buys the next 10 properties, spouse number one is also on the title as an owner of those properties. So, you know, as you can imagine, this is a huge, huge thing. You know, Fannie Mae, if you do go joint on your mortgages, right? Fannie Mae will count that against each of you. So if you go joint the traditional path, you buy eight homes, guess what? Each of you have eight finance slots slots filled versus, of course, going jointly. And the same logic applies to your children, right? You may have a child who's 20 years old who works for the family business, part-time, always going to college. Well, guess what? If he has no debt, but he has an income coming in, his debt-to-income ratio is also negligible. So we can help that you know, adolescent son of yours or daughter be able to acquire investment real estate as well. So it's a very, it's it's a very small detail, but a very, very powerful detail um, that can help with, you know, getting the best financing when you're trying to grow your portfolio. So what happens if the spouse doesn't have an income? That's a good question. So if the spouse doesn't have an income, but she is on title of the primary home as an owner, or even on the mortgage, we can actually qualify that spouse for a DSCR loan. You know, and that's what's great, right? We almost have a product for every situation. You need to have a good credit history. You need to have a good credit score. You have to have money for the down payment. But even if that spouse was not working, and let's say she went the conventional path, right? You and I got to them too late. They bought their primary home six years ago. They were joint. They bought a couple rentals since. And now they're at five finance properties, right? So they only have five left if they go the conventional path. Well, you can still divide at that point, husband and wife. and. If wife or husband in that example didn't have an income, um, then they could utilize the DSCR loan product and still go buy their properties. So it sounds like, you know, a strategy here then for someone who's listening to this would be if you have a spouse that's not working and you have the ability to create income through a side gig or maybe it's you're managing your own real estate, I would probably recommend then they set up a C corporation. Make money through that C corporation, either through the side gig or through the management of real estate, have it owned by the working spouse, but pay the non-working spouse a W-2. So now you've created the income for the non-working spouse so they can qualify for those 10 properties. What do you think about that strategy? I think it's a great strategy. And they'll qualify getting that conventional financing, right? For our requirements, person can show an income regardless of you know where it's coming from, even if it is managing the properties they have, then that's an income that works. And I think that is a good strategy because it's very easy for someone that has four, five, six, how many of her properties to start paying themselves or, for example, their spouse um, management fee to help manage that portfolio. And that is income we can use. Okay. So with those um, loans, that the, the Freddie Fannie stuff, the conventional stuff that you, that you have the 10 pack on, now those are income driven. Are, do they also have the loans where it's an asset security-based loan, where if I have a, re- a portfolio in the stock market, say, of $300,000, can I still qualify for that type of loan based upon that portfolio or the income it generates? We do offer asset-backed loans. Uh, they're mainly used more for primary homes, just because that, once again, that DSCR product is so aggressive and so attractive that it kind of negates any of these other programs. However, DSCR, as you can imagine, is is for investors, right? So where we see people using the asset-backed loans more is on primary homes, because once again, you can't use the DSCR loan for a primary. However, 
there would be no use on a rental form to use an asset back loan because the terms in all reality would be worse than that of a DSCR loan. If I have, say, five loans on five different properties that I took out in my own name and I transfer those properties into a limited liability company that I've set up and my LLC agrees with me that it will cover the loan and it'll assume the loan and pay, make all the payments, then when I submit a financial state to obtain a new loan, I don't need to list those as obligations that I currently have since my company has agreed to cover that obligation. What are your thoughts on that? Well, generally, that mortgage would still be in the individual's name. Sure, it is. Yeah. But on that financial statement that you're submitting. Yeah. Well, in terms of underwriting guidelines, how Mm -hmm. we would look at it is is they probably would not be able to use that income um, for qualifying. You wouldn't be able to use the income? You you won't be able to use the income initially. Uh, Typically, it just depends, right? If, If the properties are owned as an LLC, Mm-hmm. as a pass-through entity, and they still yep. pass through to their individual tax returns, then we can take that income at face value. However, if the business is filing its own returns, let's say it owns you know multiple properties, typically they're going to want to see established history of that business to use uh, most of that rental income. Now, they do we do have the ability to review that on a case-by-case basis and still add the rental income, assuming it was just a liability structure change. So what am I hearing is this. So if I had a a disregarded LLC that doesn't file a tax return, all the income flows down to me, and I transfer my real estate into that LLC, and it has a $2,000 a month mortgage payment, and my LLC agrees to assume the loan. When I'm completing my financial statement, and I'm listing out how much income I generate, and I say, well, I generate $24,000 a year in, in passive income from real estate, but I have no liabilities. And I put zero liabilities associated with that because my LLCs assume that. Does that work for filling out the financial statement? I'm just trying to say, hey, so I can look better to the underwriter when I submit it. No, it wouldn't because the underwriter would still see that obligation tied to your personal credit. To the credit report. It wouldn't offer any benefit other than asset protection. Now, it wouldn't necessarily be a negative either Mm -hmm. because assuming it's a pass-through, we can still use the income on it. Um, And and I, I... think we spoke about this briefly in the past, but, you know, Fannie Mae, as of about three or four years ago, and Freddie Mac, they actually now do allow transfer of properties after closing to single member LLCs and entities. For the longest time, as we're aware, uh, they did not allow it. People still used to do it, you know, in the 5,000 loans that I've closed, I would say a good portion of people, you know, still would transfer properties to an LLC. In my career, I've heard of two people getting popped, and basically they got a letter stating, hey, we noticed you transferred to an LLC. You've got 90 days to transfer it back to your personal name or pay off the loan. Now, as mentioned, as of about three or four years ago, that has changed. You're actually allowed now to do it, which is good, right? It's a good sign for investors that the government, Fannie, Freddie, uh, they realize that transferring to an LLC is an asset protection measure. And you know, once again, they do allow it now. All right. So now I want to get to the thing about when it comes to being an investor and finding low interest rate loans right now, because everyone will tell you, hey, there are no low interest rate loans for real estate investors. But as you know, as you told me, yeah, they're out there. They're 5% loans out there. You just need to know where to look to find these deals. I'd love for you to share with us how a real estate investor in today's market can find a 5% loan to buy investment real estate. 
I know it sounds unbelievable, right? But yeah, it exists. And I am actually helping set up a lot of builders with those loans. So to get into some details, this this loan product is called a forward commitment program. Now, the builder, the developer is the one that needs to initiate it. We'll cover some details here broadly. But basically, this program has been around for 15 plus years. And prior to it being completely changed earlier this year, it wasn't a very popular program with builders because it had carrying costs and you know it was very expensive and the terms just didn't make sense. But basically what this program allows builders to do is builders can incentivize a block of money, right? So they can say, hey, I've got $3 million worth of closings coming up in the next 90 days. And I want to incentivize the rate on that $3 million for my prospective buyers. And and by incentivize the rate, essentially what these builders are doing is they're paying points just like we do on the front end, right? As consumers, as investors. However, these builders are paying a lot of points and putting up a lot of money to drop the rates on these investment properties. And as you can imagine, you know, obviously it's a good business move for them because as investors, we're looking for cash flow and the builders are selling based on the cash flow of the property. And as you can imagine, you know, going from the market rates of seven and a half to, you know, rates as low as, you know, 2% lower. So five and a half has a huge profound impact on the cash flow. This program is out there. It is being utilized by a lot of builders and developers. The customers, the clients, us as investors, of course, need to find builders and developers that are working with this program because that's you can't call in and just get this program. It needs to be set up by a builder and the funds need to be incentivized by the builder. The great news, though, is you as the end client, me as the end client, as the investor, we're just coming into a conventional 30-year fixed, right? Nothing special about it. It's not a step-down program or step-up program where the rate increases. It's fixed from the get-go. The only difference is the builders paid five, six, seven points to be able to bring your rate as an investor down um, very, very, very dramatically. We're obviously in a unique position in the market right now. Rates are high, right? Uh, and sellers are feeling it, although real estate is still robust. Prices have still gone up nationally over the last year. But this, everyone needs to realize that is sitting on the fence, right? That is waiting for rates to drop. Um, firstly, not going to happen probably in the very near future, although it is expected in the next year. But what is going to happen when rates drop? Everyone who's been sitting on the fence, all your friends who are of your age, everyone's going to go buy, right? And what's going to happen on the house prices? They're going to accelerate and they're going to continue going up. And, you know, for, for one thing that we've been telling a lot of our clients, of course, is there is inventory now. There is an opportunity to participate in the housing market and you can refinance in the near future. Now, with this program, this absolves all those concerns, right? For people who are waiting for rates to drop into the five, they're waiting for um, you know affordability to increase. Um, this does that for you. However, there's not going to be a herd of other people trying to go buy houses like there will be when rates drop. So, you know, my advice to you guys out there is find if you hear rates advertised in the fives for investors or even for primary homes, because this product is available to you know primary home buyers as well. Definitely inquire more about it um, because this program is. Huge. The builders are putting up a lot of money to move their inventory. And it's going to get you to a rate, which frankly, you know, the best case scenario for rates that you hear the pundits saying in the next, you know, one to three years is, you know, if rates move back to the 5% range. Well, guess what? You can get that today 
on properties available with select builders and developers. Is there anything else out there that if I'm an investor, I should be aware of when it comes to financing my real estate that you think is really important right now in 2023? There's no other products out there besides the products that we covered, the DSER and this builder forward commitment. But I mean, the biggest thing I'll tell people is, look, the reason why we're in this elevated housing price, and I don't want to call it elevated because it's just the norm now, is supply and demand. Nationally, we're short five, six million homes, and that number goes up every year. So look, regardless of, because you a lot of people get in the debate of, oh, well, you know, hedge funds and investors are buying houses. Regardless of who's buying the house, right? Regardless of it's you and me or a hedge fund or a primary home buyer, there's not enough roofs overheads. And even pushing interest rates as high as they've been in 20 plus years and mortgage payments have doubled from two or three years ago on the same price house. Guess what? House prices are still strong. They've gone up. Real estate remains robust. And as hard as the Fed is trying with raising these rates, they still can't fix or can't cool housing down because we have a supply and demand issue. That's economics 101. So, you know, me personally, I'm continuing to grow my portfolio. I know that, you know, I'm marrying the property, but I'm dating the rate. Um, and then you throw in some of these good programs out there, the Builder Ford commitment, the DSCR. Think of the DSCR loans, right? When they first came out, they scared me a little because I'm like, wait a minute, what do you mean no income documentation? You know what? Like, are we going back to where we were? And then you look a little deeper and you're like, okay, well, these people are putting 20, 25% down and they have to meet requirements where the rent covers that covers the payment. But I started thinking, I'm like, okay, well, the people who are actually putting this money up, right, for these DSER products, the banks, the hedge funds, wherever it's coming from, they have a lot more information, a lot more data than we do, right? And to them, having 20% down and the fact that the rent covers the mortgage payment is enough security for them. To be your partner in that deal and put down 80% of the money when you're just putting a 20 or 25% down payment really showed me how robust the state of housing is and how robust um, it is going to be moving forward as well, right? Because you know, at the end of the day, if you default on you know this loan, then guess what? That property is going to be added as a rental to the portfolio probably of the hedge fund. And that's enough security for them to invest in real estate and be the majority partner in a deal, right? It's important to know. And realize that you know when you're investing in real estate, you're putting 25% down. Well, banks putting 75%. And if they believe in the transaction as a majority partner, that gives some semblance of confidence. Hey, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on here and share with us everything that's going on with regards to lending and what investors should be looking out for. If somebody wanted to get a hold of you and, and work with you on putting together the, some loans for investment real estate, I assume you can help people throughout the United States? Yes, we are licensed nationally, and obviously it's just primary homes, investors, and um, DSER, conventional, and beyond. My website is richardadvani.com. I know uh, Clinton will put my contact information down in the body. If anyone needs anything, we're not the type of lender that wants to pull your credit and get an app and get your firstborn. We're here to have conversations. You know, Being successful in real estate does involve planning, getting information, and getting that early on. So you know, whether you want to do something in a week, month, year, feel free, to, feel free to utilize us as a resource. Richard, hey, thank you, sir. Thank you, Clint. Take care. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at andersonadvisors.com slash podcast. 
be sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you are already a subscriber, please provide us a review of what you thought of this episode.